Think on your feet for our Fast and Curious 5K, a -a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at wbez.org slash events. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. Aaron Salter, Ruth Whitfield, Pearl Young, Celestine Cheney, Roberta Drury, Hayward Patterson, Margus Morrison, Andre McNeil, Geraldine Talley, and Catherine Massey. All 10 were killed Saturday when an 18-year-old racist white man opened fire with an assault rifle at a Topps grocery store in Buffalo. All 10 were black, and three more were injured. A lengthy document the shooter posted online made it very clear that this was a targeted attack. And his bigotry was written not only online, but on the barrel of his weapon, where he'd scrawled the N-word. My thoughts all weekend have been on these victims and the families grieving this tragedy. I'm also thinking of the survivors, including children who were hiding in freezers and running towards a back door, scared out of their minds. That moment will be with them forever, especially the black shoppers who now know that someone hated the color of their skin so much that he wanted them all dead. All mass shootings are painful, and frankly, this country has seen far too many. But a mass shooting at the grocery store location where I shopped regularly with my family when we lived in Buffalo six years ago hit close to home. There really are no words. So as we try our best to process this news, we turn to Watson Jones III for his thoughts. He's the senior pastor of Compassion Baptist Church on the southeast side. Pastor Jones, welcome to Reset. Thank you, Sasha, for having me. Also with us to share her thoughts is Charlene Carruthers, author and activist based here in Chicago. Welcome, Charlene. Thank you for having me. I'll start with you, Charlene. What did you think and what did you feel when you first heard this news and realized that this was an assault on a black community? Well, I went right back to Mother Emanuel. I went right back to so many moments in which black people were engaged in everyday activities and uh, a young white person entered their space of leisure, their space of worship, their space of just being and taking and, and took their lives. And so I'm feeling devastated, sad and angry for the people whose lives were taken, the folks who survived, and also the loved ones of everyone who is directly impacted uh, by the violence that happened uh, in Buffalo. Of course, you mentioned Emmanuel. You're talking about 2015, when uh, yeah. nine black churchgoers were shot and killed at Emmanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina. Yeah. My mind went there. I know a lot of folks' minds jumped back to that time. Pastor, how about you? Yes, I want to second what Charlene says. My mind goes back to Emmanuel. I think of the bombing in Alabama, uh, where the young girls were at church and were killed innocently. Uh, for me, I feel like I've, I've fight back bitterness and anger, um, specifically at the people who perpetuate this kind of stuff. And so um, it's deeply heartbreaking, deeply sad. I think about the families who have lost their loved ones who were going out on a routine shopping event. 
I think about even the fact that Tops is closed now mm-hmm. and the number of people in the community who are going to be affected by that for, for, for a while, you know, thinking about fear of going back to a store or people who are relying on that store for medicine, for groceries, now I have to figure something else out. I, I think um, there's a part of me that also feels like this is nothing new, uh, and it's sad that that's even a statement. Um, yeah. The so question I, I keep coming back to, Pastor, is why? And and we're getting more answers as the days go on. We know now that the shooter was driven by white supremacist ideology. But even as we get more details, I still wonder why. Yeah, so do I. I think this is this is to me another picture of the hate that hate births. Uh, I look at this guy who perpetuated this this heinous act and he does not fit whatever people would say the stereotype of that kind of person is. This person lived in New York, obviously not in Buffalo, but he lived in a, the most one of the most northern states, number one, mm-hmm. which shows us that this kind of thinking is not isolated to the margins of our society anymore. It's very much around us. Um, I, I'm, I'm, I think about the fact that this hate continues to go unchecked. I wonder what did his parents teach him? What what did he hear his grandparents say? What did he hear his community members say uh, that would, you know, perpetuate this sort of indoctrination? Um, we know that it's with us. I mean, just even in Evanston, three nooses are hanging from a tree. This kind of climate in which we live in is one that doesn't really hold accountable uh, the free speech element of hate that is allowed to just float and yeah. go as it goes. And you let the wrong person get it and let it feel like it answers all of the evils in their lives. And it, it doesn't stop them from picking up a gun to kill people whom they hate, who, who they never met, by the way, never knew, never sat with, never spoke to, but, but to them are the embodiment of everything evil in the world. Yeah. Charlene, you know, as the pastor said, the people at Tops, um, they were shopping for food, right? Mm-hmm. People at the church in, in South Carolina were doing Bible study. Mm-hmm. It's starting to feel like there's no place to be safe, right? Ahmaud Arbery wasn't safe, just mm-hmm. jogging. Breonna Taylor was asleep at her bed. Yes. So, you know, I have been wrestling with the language being used to describe this particular moment, be it from President of the United States, President Biden, saying that, you know, this um, is outside of the fabric of the United States or the rhetoric that this is um, a hate, this should be designated as a hate crime. What happened um, to these folks in the violence that occurred in Buffalo at the grocery store that resulted in the, the death of 10 black people who are mostly elders, you mm-hmm. know, older black folks who didn't get to live out the, the, the fullness of their lives is indeed a part of the fabric of this country. And yes, it's, it's not new, but it is, at, to me, hate doesn't fully capture the violence because what we're seeing here is an emotion that is backed up by policy, practice, uh, decades of legislation, decades of budgets, money, all of these things. These, his ideas are resourced beyond him as an individual. They're resourced through networks, through 
um, educational institutions, through everyday people, faith-based institutions, economic and political institutions in this country. And so black people have never had, on this particular land, lived with any consistent sense or access to safety. Any safety that we have is generated and produced by ourselves and those Mm -hmm. who are our co-conspirators. You bring up language, um, Charlene, when 18-year-old Michael Brown was killed by police in Ferguson, uh, Missouri, back in 2014, the Associated Press called him at the time a a black man. Yes. And over the weekend, the AP initially called this shooter, who's the same age, a, quote, white teenager. Mm -hmm. They later corrected that to 18-year-old white man. What do you make of that discrepancy? Well, I believe that all language is intentional. And that the language that is most oftentimes used to describe black people uh, regularly strips away our sense of personhood. And one can even uh, go further to talk about uh, humanity. But I even think humanity doesn't really capture who we are, doesn't really capture who we are in the world. And so Michael Brown wasn't even considered to be a child. Couldn't even, they couldn't even fathom it. But to me, I'm more concerned with how we talk about the actions of this young person, this young person, this young white person, uh, and the, the, the his actions and the rhetoric that backs that up. Mm-hmm. And we can, I, I of course, want to designate Mike Brown as as a teenager because he was a teenager. But what do we associate with black youth? What do we associate with black elderhood? And that is all, more oftentimes, not just in our rhetoric, but in the very legislation in this country, our policies, uh, not a, the same things aren't afforded to us that are afforded to white people. So I, I care about the language. But I want to be really clear that the language is tied to practices and policies and money that governs and impacts our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. Pastor, um, in recent years, we have seen the number of terrorist attacks and mass shootings by white extremists increase. Why do you think that is, and what what do you make of it? Oh man, I think it's an ancient root. Um, it's it's one. I mean, I think it goes right back to uh, the fact that you know the North would not really deal with the South on some of their whack or disturbing thoughts about Black people post slavery. Uh, I think also there's this growing belief among white people, some that they are somehow being replaced by others and and that that brings fear in their hearts that makes them feel like in order well they want to first get away from uh the possibility of retribution or things happening to them that was perpetuated on other people uh and so i think it's there's a sense where people are are fed these lies and they live in echo chambers where no one outside of them is able to educate them beyond what they know. I think we see this same thing, you know, even if I think about rhetoric, we see this same thing happening among people who are throwing up this fight against critical race theory Mm -hmm. and calling everything in schools that talks about race, critical race theory, and therefore categorically wrong. Um, This is, this is the the refusal to, to face reality as it is. Um, and to understand uh, and to see people as people, similar to to what Charlene said, to see people as people, to see us as humans and not something other. In 2019, right-wing extremists perpetrated nearly two-thirds 
of the terrorist attacks and plots in the U.S. And uh, this is language from the Homeland Security's Homeland Threat Assessment uh, back in October 2020. It says, among domestic violent extremists, racially and ethically ethnically motivated violent extremists, specifically white supremacist extremists, they will remain the most persistent and lethal threat in the homeland. Sticking with you for another moment here, Pastor, you've said that this story also highlights the need for fair policing in this country. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Absolutely. I think you you see a common theme whenever a white man kills black people or any group of people for that matter on a mass shooting kind of situation. For whatever reason, the police is able to capture and apprehend that person without killing that person. Now I'm not one to advocate violence and I don't celebrate death of anybody. Uh, Whereas there's constant stories that fly through the news on a weekly basis, almost of an unarmed black person being killed in some kind of way. And usually whenever there is discussion about why black people are being killed in this way, obviously the rhetoric goes like they were violent, they were resisting, they showed they were, we felt like our lives were in danger. That's that's what the gentleman said about Laquan McDonald. Um, this shows us that police do have capacity to to deal with heavily armed individuals. This 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 guy who shot this store up yeah. had was was fully armed. With with heavy artillery rifle, with with metal on his legs, on his body, on his head, and some kind of way they got him to unarm himself. Um, this is an evi- This to me is evidence that, and I'm you know I'm not necessarily saying that people should be met with all kinds of violence either, but I'm saying that there is an inconsistency in how police deal with and address African American and Latino people in this country, whereas a white person can commit the absolute heinous crime of killing innocent unarmed people and can be apprehended without a scratch placed on it. Mm-hmm. That's evidence of, of inequality in policing to me. Charlene, your, your book's called Unapologetic, a Black, Queer, and Feminist Mandate for Radical Movements. What are you hearing from fellow activists and, and advocates here in our city right now? Mm-hmm. So I think, unfortunately, this is another moment where we see the failure of state institutions that receive literally just in Chicago billions of dollars um, uh, with a claim to keep people safe. We, we see them failing. We saw them fail in Buffalo. They didn't prevent um, the people in Buffalo from being massacred, and they in turn successfully apprehended the the person who you know, who, who entered that place and, and killed them. And so here in Chicago and, and, and other places as well, people are once again saying, where are we putting our resources? Where are we putting our money and our energy? And what we see, and uh, we see over and over again just this past weekend, uh, what happened in Millennium Park um, um, in downtown Chicago, the solution by the mayor in response to uh, a death of a, of a young black person and the presence of a lot of, of young black people is to say that they can no longer be there. Is to shut it as down. Opposed to saying, yeah. Shut it down, as opposed to saying, why don't we have programming for them at the park? Why don't we have programming for them in their neighborhoods? Oh, that actually costs money and resources and takes a political will to, to shift budgetary priorities. So when we say defund the police, this is what we mean. We mean that instead of putting money in the Chicago Police Department, we mean providing services, programs, 
that young people actually deserve to have in this city that I want my tax dollars to go towards. That's where I want my money to go towards so that these young people have the things, the, the programming, the activities, the services in their neighborhoods, and also know that they are welcome downtown in every part of the city. I grew up here. I was born and raised on the south side. Mm-hmm. So this isn't an exercise in futility for me or just like an abstract idea. It is where are young people, particularly young black and brown people, welcome in the city and where, where are they not? And if folks don't see the connection in between the violence that is perpetuated um, in our public school systems and social media and the news and in our government to the, the lack of resources that young people have, be they black, brown or white, to be full people and to see other people as full people, I don't know what else to There is a connection, and I just encourage people to see the connection and, like, where we should invest our time, our energy, and our money, because where we've been doing that is not actually keeping us safe anywhere. Pastor, because you're taking care of a, a sick family member right now, you actually haven't had a chance to, to speak directly to your congregation at the uh, Compassion Baptist Church on yeah. East 95th Street. Uh you do plan to talk to them about this mass shooting this Sunday, though. So talk about that. What role do you think you're going to play for your parishioners at this point, And what do you hope to get across to them? Yeah, so as a Christian preacher, I first believe that this ought not uh, make us hateful. Um, I think hate makes you unproductive, and and it, it really turns into a cancer upon yourself. So there's a part of us that says, you know, in order for us to really be productive, to see uh, real change, hate cannot be what festers in our hearts. So we have to find a way to exercise it out of our hearts. But I, but as a Christian, I also believe deeply in accountability. There are a number of things that I think need to be addressed. The fact that if this young man was indoctrinated by this mess, by stuff on the Internet, um, there, there are things that need to be addressed about the, the freedom to access that kind of stuff. Um, there needs to be real accountability, even as we relate to law enforcement. I think that this this should not distract from the question you asked me just a second ago, that as a church and as people in the community, as people who are citizens who pay taxes here, still have to be able to hold our police accountable mm-hmm. to, to fair and equal uh, policing. But it also should tell us, as, as I'll tell my congregation, that we need to be as people who love, but also people who push against this kind of injustice uh, to ensure that our communities are safe as well. Pastor Jones brought up a point a few minutes ago about the growing fear of replacement among some white Americans. And we've seen that fear before, like in August of 2017, when white nationalists rallied at the University of Virginia in Charlottesville. You'll remember the tiki torches and chants like this. You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not replace us! You will not the shooter in Buffalo wrote a 180-page document filled with hateful, racist rants and repeated references to a conspiracy theory referred to as, quote, the Great Replacement. But what is it? And how is it tied into the rise of domestic terrorism? Robert Pape is a professor of political science at the University of Chicago and director of the Chicago Project on Security and Threats. Professor Pape, welcome back to Reset. Uh, glad to be here. First off, your reaction to that news out of Buffalo? 
well, I wish I could say I was surprised, but unfortunately, this is in line with the research that we've been doing at the University of Chicago Project on Security and Threats for well over a year now, nearly. Uh, we started uh, shortly after the January 6th event, and what we are seeing in both our very detailed analyses of, of the demographics of who was arrested for January 6th, um, uh, that's the assault on the Capitol, and then also our nationally representative surveys of uh, violent sentiments in the United States today, which we've conducted, um, is um, a tremendous amount of, um, uh, call it uh, tinder or call it uh, tinder wood that mm -hmm. could be set off. And um, this is exactly what I've been warning about now in various op-eds and to government authorities for nearly a year. And so it is very tragic uh, to see this come to be. But um, uh, you, what you are seeing is uh, ideas that used to be the fringe, the great replacement, uh, are no longer just staying on the fringe. They're coming into the mainstream. And the more they come into the mainstream, the more that will encourage volatile actors to act on those. Yeah. And that will come with deadly effect, I'm sorry to say. Professor, dig into that. The great replacement theory. The, the suspect referenced this uh, in his writings. What is it? Yes. Um, the great replacement is uh, the basic idea that whites are being replaced by non-whites. They're being replaced by immigrants They're, uh, that is flooding into the country. They're being replaced inside the country by greater birth rates that minorities may have than whites have. And so over time, the idea here with the Great Replacement Theory is that there won't just be demographic change, but this will lead to cultural replacement and then also ultimately the end of uh, rights, where uh, rights of whites will lose out to the rights of a growing majority of non-whites. Mm. Uh, this has been an idea that's been on the fringe um, for actually, you can even go back over 100 years. So this, the roots of this idea are not really terribly new, but um, it's been uh, growing in particular in far-right circles for the last 10 years. This isn't just in the United States. This is in, uh, in France mm -hmm. uh, and other European countries, and you hear chants of uh, – this at uh, Charlottesville, where a lot of your listeners will remember the chant that those white supremacists were chanting, Jews yeah. will not replace us, Jews will not replace us. Well, that is all part of this larger theory called the Great Replacement, which unfortunately now, as I said, is is moving into the mainstream. The uh, I found it interesting, a uh, core belief to the um, the white supremacist movement is this 14-word slogan, we must secure the existence of our people and a future for white children. So I've read the 160-page um, manifesto in detail, and unfortunately this is, goes through great detail, these ideas of the Great Replacement. This is not just a loose connection. Um, and so it has to do with, uh, you know, recounting of fertility rates. Mm -hmm. It has to do with recounting of immigration, you know. Uh, and, of course, uh, listeners will know that mainstream political leaders have been complaining about the Democratic Party uh, deliberately having policies to open the southern border to flood our country with um, uh, people from the third world, um, uh, all of whom are implied as non-white, uh, to change the electorate as a deliberate policy. Well, that is what is the modern popular version in the mainstream of the Great Replacement. 
So that is the idea that you hear virtually every night on Fox News with Tucker Carlson. We've never seen demographic change like this. It's roughly the equivalent of a brand new city of Chicago every year. A city populated entirely by poor people with limited education who can't speak English. Uh, you hear this with uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene. Uh, you hear this with many different Republicans. Uh, Trump alludes to this in various ways. Mm -hmm. So this is no longer, these are not ideas that you just need to go to, like, the edges of the Internet or, or kind of weird web uh, platforms that none of us have really ever heard of and that change every month anyway. No, this is now part and parcel of mainstream discourse. And you hear it in um, Trump rallies. You hear it in um, uh, just, again, every night on uh, Newsmax, Fox News. Um, and now what you're seeing is it's becoming, unfortunately, uh, it, it encourages this, this, main, this thinking, encourages volatile actors mm -hmm. that they're acting in a legitimate way. And this, that's how and they, this that's rising... why they believe they're acting legitimately. You mentioned earlier, Professor, this is not uniquely an American problem, right? We are seeing this kind of rhetoric across the globe. Um, uh, that's, that's true, but I do want to zero in on, um, so in our work at CFOS at the University of Chicago, mm -hmm. we have been showing that the people who were arrested for breaking into the Capitol lived in mostly blue districts in the country, mm -hmm. not the reddest parts of America. Uh, what, where they really come from are the parts of the country that are losing the most white population. Well, that's true of this guy in space. So I just want to just point this fact out, that he comes from Conklin, New York, which is a small town but in a larger county called Broome County, New York. Broome County, New York has about 200,000 people, and it, since 2010, according to our census, Broome County has lost 8% of non-Hispanic white population since 2010. That's one of the greatest losses in the entire country, and we track this now county by county. And so that really is striking because the, he is coming from, just like those who broke into the Capitol on mm -hmm. January 6th, not just from like red farm district or poor area, lost manufacturing. No, that's not the key indicator. The key risk factor of the cauldron of who's producing these folks um, is whether the county lost um, demographically non-Hispanic white population. So you marry that environment that he's been in with this political rhetoric, and mm -hmm. you can start to see how volatile people, unfortunately, will connect those dots. And so this isn't a problem in Europe. This is a problem here in the United States. And it's a problem that, unfortunately, we're just beginning the wildfire season of the 2022 election season. So this has been something that we've been concerned about now for well over a year at CPOST. Your listeners can go to our website and see our very detailed reports on, on this issue uh, right in the front page of the website, uh, CPOST at the University of Chicago, CPOST. And um, I'm just, um, yeah. it's really sad to see this come to be. When you study, Professor, who is most likely to, to think that political violence is okay, what is it that you find there? Well, we found a striking fact. You see, those on January 6th were overwhelmingly business owners and doctors, lawyers, and accountants. Uh, they're not coming from the poorest parts of society. Well, here, um, the man who did this, and I won't read his name, but he says, he, he talks about his biography in his manifesto, and he says, and I quote, 
I graduated high school with a Regents Diploma with advanced designation and currently enrolled in SUNY Broome with a major in engineering science. Mm -hmm. So this is not (laughs) um, the kind of profile that you typically think of when you think of, uh, you know, sort of extremists and so forth. And I think um, we need to just uh, do the serious demographic study and not rely on kind of quick presumptions in the media, because the more we study the demographics of um, who's uh, engaged with far-right political violence in the last two years, what you see is a very different profile than we are used to seeing over the last 10 years. Ten, you know, just even a few years ago, they tended to be Uh, not going to college, they tended to be poor, they tended to be, you know, coming from the marginal parts of life. That's not who this guy is, and that is the the Buffalo shooter, and that's not who broke into the Capitol on January 6th. And this is a different uh, world, because the world we're seeing is extremism move into the mainstream. And as that does, it means folks that actually have a future ahead of them um, are committing these awful acts of violence. In your expertise and research, what action can be taken here? Like, can these ideas be interceded? Well, we want everything to be on the margins because we don't like our monsters to be very close to us. It feels very uncomfortable. And that means we want to make it just a law enforcement problem and just say, well, we just need to add a few resources to the FBI. And for sure, we we do want to do that. Um, But this guy was not part of any gang. He says very clearly he was not part of any pre-existing gang. He was not part of a militant group. He's not part of a militia. Um, He is saying he's getting a lot of ideas off the Internet. That's for sure. Um, But what's really happening is this is a political problem. This is not just a narrow law enforcement issue. Um, and what we need is we need um, our political leaders um, to really engage with the fact that we have now mainstream, we have extremism now in the mainstream. That, and that's an extremely different problem than we're used to grappling with. So the number one thing we need to do is recognize that vi- um, uh, political violence in America in the last couple of years has morphed. It's changed and now it's become a major political issue, and this means we have to have major conversations. Um, I think every candidate who runs for office should be uh, should ask uh, should be asked. Well, if you um, uh, if you lose, are you going to accept the the loss, or are you going to um, uh, keep promoting things even at the expense of democracy? So every candidate should be asked to. Uh, hold them, you know, held held to account. Are they for democracy or not? That's all for today's Reset. We will continue to follow this story and bring you the latest, which you can find right here on the Reset Podcast. And we would love to hear from you. What was your reaction when you heard the news over the weekend? What's on your mind now? You can leave us a voicemail at 888-915-9945. Especially when we're covering tough topics like these in the news, we think it's important for you to have a chance to make your voice heard. So leave us a message, 888-915-9945. Thanks for spending your time with us today. Take care, and we will see you back here tomorrow.
Thanks for listening to the news live on WBEZ and NPR. The WBEZ stream sounds great in the kitchen on your smart speaker and anywhere on the WBEZ app. Listen every day.